should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Hi, everyone. This is Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, uh, where we bring race to the people and we bring people together from different cultures and different backgrounds to talk about race and social issues. I'm so excited today about my two guests. I have Jennifer Brown and Minol Bopaya on the show. Jennifer is CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, which is a leadership development and diversity inclusion consulting firm. And Manol is the president, I mean, is the principal consultant and founder of a branding and design firm called Brevity and Wit. And now what I'm going to have each of you do, I'm going to have Jennifer and Manol each introduce themselves. Would you say a couple of sentences about who you are, a little bit about your demographics, since people can't see what you look like. Jennifer. <laughs> I like how you asked that, Tim. Thanks. This is Jennifer Brown. And uh, a little bit about me. I have a consulting company, as you pointed out. I've been a, D- a DNI practitioner for over a decade, and I'm a new-ish author. Uh, I have a book out a year now called Inclusion, Diversity, the New Workplace, and the Will to Change. And I identify as a white, female, cisgender, uh, lesbian, uh, upper-middle-class, able, <laughs> able-bodied, uh, West Coast, and I could go on and on, but we'll, uh, we'll talk about that today, I'm sure. Thank you. Minal. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Jennifer. It's nice to hear you, too. Um, so my name is Minal Bopaya, and I am, uh, like Sima said, the founder and principal consultant of Brevity and Wit, which does branding and design for social impact. Um, I also have a background in psychology and publishing and journalism, so I use a lot of my training for behavior change communications, um, whether that's around diversity and inclusion or other social change or social justice issues. And I identify as um, a cisgender woman, uh, heterosexual, of Indian descent, which means that my parents actually came here when my mom was pregnant with me and a native New Yorker who now lives in the greater D.C. area, which is always a fun clash of cultures, um, and I think, and I guess able-bodied, and um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I've left out, but I'm happy to talk about it if I have. Okay, thank you. Well, I'm so excited to have both of you on the show since both of you have such, have such great reputations in the field. My, since this is everyday conversations on race for everyday people, My first question is, why is addressing issues of race important to you? Well, uh, Mina, would you like to go first? No, go first. (laughs) Okay. All right. (laughs) Okay, I'll take a shot. Uh, Speaking about race is, you know, given my demographic and identity, it is uh, incredibly important for me to not act like it's not an issue that's all around us, but to actually name it. And uh, I prefer to use also there's race and ethnicity, and we really talk about ethnicity, we talk about culture, we talk about nationality, all of these things that make us who we are, that uh, make up the richness of the workplace, which is what my primary focus is. And so as a, dare I call myself a white ally, um, and, you know, sometimes people don't know what I mean by that or they think it sounds strange, but my embracing of my own ethnicity and the advantages and the privileges that come with it that were not earned by me mean in my life as a practitioner and just in my life in general and in the world 
that I have a opportunity to use that privilege um, and with less risk than perhaps uh, having conversations as a person of color will have. So the way I experience the whole the, the race experience is in my own skin as a white person and the ability that we have to build bridges and speak. Um, and speak we must. So I know we will talk probably a little bit later about what what all that means um, in terms of supporting inclusion. But that is one of the ways that I understand it and my place in the discussion. Thank you so much. And I actually loved how you addressed privilege because sometimes when people talk about privilege, they don't really, it's not really clear to people. And so it sounds like rhetoric. So thank you. And then mm-hmm. how, how about you? Tell us a little bit about why you think that it's important topic to address. Yeah, I mean, I would probably go back even a step and say that I just think it's important to talk about difference and the ways in which people are different and to give room in our society for people to be different and still be included in some way. And I think in American society, race is a huge um, sort of identifying you know, or qualifier for how people are different here. Um, even though it's somewhat of a social construct, it's a social construct that that weighs heavily on people one way or another. Uh, and I also think it's important, particularly for South Asians like myself, or South Asian Americans like myself, to talk about it because I think there is still a legacy of divide and conquer that goes on. And, and what I mean by that is that um, I think South Asians and Asians, Asian Americans are very much held up as a model minority to make um, black Americans or Hispanic Americans feel bad about themselves, like they should be as successful. And I think there's a real myth behind that because the fact of the matter is that before 1975, this country had an immigration policy that said that the immigration um, quotas would match the current population, meaning that they were preferencing people of Northern European descent in terms of coming into the country. And my parents could not have gotten into the country until that law was changed. Uh, and also because America had a doctor shortage. And so um, I have the privilege of growing up middle class because my parents are doctors. But the reason that exists is not because, you know, South Asians are inherently smarter than any other race or gender, but because America takes advantage of a socialized education system in India where my parents were able to go to medical school for about $50 a semester and then recruit those people to come in. If they had uh, recruited the people who were uneducated or forced my parents to work as laborers or to be slaves, the whole story of my trajectory would be very different. And I think it's very important that um, the the sort of influx of uh, Asians and um, Asian Americans and South Asian Americans that are growing in this country in my generation are mindful of that history and then use that to be able to have difficult conversations about race and stop this legacy of divide and conquer. I have a question since I don't always have people on this show who are in the field. (laughs) I would love to hear how both of you got in this in this field in one way or another. I mean, I know for myself, I didn't grow up, I'm from the Bronx, I didn't grow up middle class. I was always just angry because we didn't have, my family didn't have a lot of money. I was just one of those angry, angry people. And so I got into the, some of the reason, one of the ways I got into this work was out of my own anger and thinking, okay, what can I do? Who do I need to ally with to make things better? And then I started uh, getting an understanding of other issues. So, Jennifer, what about you? I mean, you could have just gone on your life just being, like you said, a white middle class person, being a lawyer and being a corporate lawyer. What was it? Was there any story or or any factors that made you say, you know what, I really want to have an impact? This is what mm. I want to do as a business and as a life. Because it's more than right. just a business yep. to you. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's a, it's a passion. And uh, it's like we couldn't do anything else. Um, I think, you know, it, from everything from those aha moments in your life, which stick with you and really change the trajectory of your life. Uh, for me, my first feminism class in college was 
turn my world upside down. You know, I'd never pondered the things in that class. And it just literally, it shifted the way I view my role in the world, my voice, the importance of my voice, what I do with my body. You know, the personal is political. We studied all the great, you know, feminist books, um, first wave, second wave. And it was, it was just a huge shift. And in fact, when I came out as LGBT, like two years later, it, it almost didn't feel as huge as the shift that, that learning about the feminist movement and reconciling with my gender and the advantages and especially disadvantages of it, um, it, it almost paled in comparison to that, that moment. But, you know, coming out, <laughs> coming out brings a whole different level of feeling that you're going to be obviously, you know, rejected from the majority society. You have to find your own way. Um, you know, moving into that community in the early 90s, which is when I came out, was, um, was thrilling to, to find people that uh, were living the same life as you were living. But even bigger than that, the activism within the community, both community activism but also especially corporate activism, was being birthed in the 90s and um, has obviously continued to this day. But, but being around, you know, 15, 20 years ago, being around the people, especially in New York, that were influencing their companies to be more inclusive of LGBT workers and policies and practices and markets was intoxicating and I think caused another aha moment for me, which was to say you can use your this aspect of your identity to consult from, you know, to guide others, to build a business around. And I didn't build my business as an LGBT business at all because I also happened to be a, a leadership development and, and organizational change um, expert, and I was doing leadership work anyway. But I think the, the pivot became um, really obvious when I realized that who I am is as much a part of what I need to teach and guide with as what I know how to do. And the marriage of those two things, I think, has uh, has really um, been such a gift, I mean, to work from this place of alignment to in the honoring of the self and the honoring of my personal life at the same time as I'm being, I'm able to uh, assist businesses. So it's, it's pretty cool, but it definitely, um, it, it, those things took me on a different path than the path I was raised to be and the expectations that my, my parents had for me of what kind of life I would lead. And, you know, there's also the small detail that I went 3,000 miles away, you know, across the country for college, like just so that I could listen to that and make sure that it was my life and not somebody else's life that I was living. I have a question, another question, though, because you talked about your background and studying feminism and being a lesbian. Something else must have also clicked in, because I think it's important to be able to use your identities to be able to connect with other identities. Not everybody does that. I mean, as a member of, as an L in the LGBTQ, I also see... A lot of people who, a lot of women even who consider themselves feminists or, or L's or GBTs, and they don't deal with issues of race. They're not even thinking about race. So what was it that put, that, put it in your consciousness to say, I need to be part of this? Hmm. Oh, gosh. How much time do we have? Um, <laughs> uh, well, my partner is Filipino-American, first generation, so... Uh, we've been together 20 years, and wow. it's been such a great journey to be, I know, I know, part of a different, completely different culture in that respect, and I, I have valued it so deeply, um, you know, because I seek, I seek difference. Like, it's just, it's why we all do this work. I think that we're fascinated with expanding our own paradigm and, um, you know, like wanting to gather all that information and, and be able to really walk in somebody else's shoes or imagine what it would be like to, because we never obviously can. Um, but, boy, I was raised in a white, white, white place. I mean, Orange County, California, I was never, even all the way through college, I was barely exposed to anyone who wasn't white. So um, I think that falling in love with someone, being in the queer community, um, necessarily, I think, expands your mind and your ability to... Um, to value diversity very differently because you know what it's like to feel excluded and it may be excluded for a different reason, but there's already this automatic, I think, kinship, at least for me, to relate to and want to represent 
others who have had my experience, even if it's defined in a different way and, and even if it may be more or less um, severe. Uh, my, my ostracization as a part of the LGBT community uh, was very mild because I also have, I am white. I'm also uh, cisgender. I am also, I, I present in a feminine normative way. So it's been really, it's really interesting. I am a member of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community that can walk around life and pass. So the other work that has been deep for me is to investigate that and to make sure that what my friend says, you know, I don't take advantage of the passing privilege. Um, And so when we think about privilege, it, it necessarily goes to the whole bigger conversation about who has privilege and who doesn't in this society. You know, and it's not just race and ethnicity and brown people and white people. It's, it's all the intersections of all these pieces of who we are and the varying degrees of privilege that it brings. So, you know, race and, race and ethnicity obviously is, is a huge thing I study. And, you know, when you look at organizations all day long, you don't see ethnically diverse talent represented, just like you don't see women represented in leadership levels. So you, you become really, I'm curi- not only curious, but passionate about changing that. So when you decide that's what you're going to go after, you have to understand other cultures besides your own. And you have to be able to carry that message to people, in my case, people that look like me, which happens to be the people who hold the keys to many powerful positions. So, you know, not only did I have to learn, but I wanted to learn, and I cared deeply about being truly inclusive and, you know, again, kind of adopting that, that ally voice wherever I possibly can. And that was, um, that's led me down this am- an amazing journey that I'm so grateful for. Thank you so much. I see you are being, have a motion that we need to stop for commercial break. We come back. Menel, we're going to hear your story. And... We're also going to talk about your work and about inclusive design since both you and Jennifer are involved in issues around branding and marketing at different levels. So this is Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist. We're stopping for commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to have Jennifer Brown and Minel Bopaya again. And we're going to be talking about race, everyday conversations on race and how we use race in marketing and branding to be more inclusive. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play, watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook, and when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do. Especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at Facebook.com forward slash Progressive Voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at Facebook.com forward slash Progressive Voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Hi, everyone, again. This is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, back from commercial break with everyday conversations on race for everyday people, talking to Jennifer Brown and Manel Bupaya. 
Manel, um, I'd love to hear your story because you said that you came from a privileged, even though your family was from India, but you still you came from a privileged background, and that your parents were doctors. You could have chosen to, you could you could have chosen to be a doctor and not have to deal with the same kind of issues in the way that you deal with them. So, would you just share a little bit about your story and what made you decide I want to have an impact? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um well, one, being raised by doctors, I think you grow up wanting to have an impact in some way. I mean, my parents were um, very much communica- community doctors. So while we were upper middle class, they were, I think my father at one point in his private practice maybe got paid on 50% of his patients. Like He was not really great at the business side of it at all. And so he really was in it to help people and didn't believe in um, actually didn't believe in advertising or marketing because he didn't feel like medicine was a business. It was a public service that you did for anybody who walked through the door. And so when you're raised with parents like that, it's a little hard not to be uh, focused on helping others in some way, shape, or form through your career. And I and I'm, uh, I don't think my parents are disappointed anymore that I didn't become a doctor, but there were some heated arguments in my teens about that. Um, and I... I think I knew that in some way, whatever I decided to do, it would have to have some sort of social impact. And I got to uh, where I am with Brevity and Wit rather circuitously. Um, I think my training in psychology was very much with the intent of um, being on the front lines of that sort of work. I used to be a rape crisis counselor. I worked with children, children with developmental delays. Um, but what I also saw when I was in grad school was a real um, sort of bias towards uh, probably what I would call European or, or WASP notions of um, psychological health, that um, when immigrant families came to a psychologist uh, or a psychiatrist, their boundaries could be different than what is the white cultural norm, and so they would be pathologized for that. There's plenty of research that shows that black Americans are almost, I think, twice or three times as likely to get diagnosed with schizophrenia versus bipolar disorder, even though there's massive symptom overlap between those disorders and um, no real cause. Uh, so, I mean, race pervades everything, including the medical model, in a lot of ways. And um, this was sort of the, the brilliance of the American Disability Act uh, decades ago because it really f- changed the focus from saying that the individual is a flawed fit to society to saying that society has society should respond to differently abled people. And we do that in a lot of ways still um, around race and gender um, and it's just I, I, because of my training both in psychology and my and my upbringing in a medical household and my expertise in communications and design, I'm able to just see it a lot clearer. Um, you know, I think I shared with you, Sima, an article about how, you know, the default in icon design is male. It's really hard to find a female set of hands giving a handshake or even the like button on Facebook is a male hand. So there's a lot, of, and because of my training in psychology, those become sort of priming and subliminal messages that get across. Um, I was, you know, my brother was over yesterday, and he was watching some show on National Geographic about fire and how that was the reason human beings have been able to accomplish so much. And they had pretty much cast an all-white cast of people to play, like, Neanderthal homo sapiens, which, first of all, makes no sense. And then... When they showed like how you know fire led to cooked food, which led to bigger brains, which you know when you were born, the child was a white child. Like there, and so what's that? What that is conveying implicitly is that the origins of humankind are white ancestors, which is really not true at all. And so it's just you know my way into this was just from my sort of background in psychology and in design and marketing and communications, it's easy for me to see the bias. And I've been in places where it's been very hard to argue why that should not be the default image to represent that idea. Well, could you give us some more examples of, um, of how you create, more, create, create 
inclusive designs, and also what pe- what should people be aware of? Sure. Um, yeah, it's a little bit tricky. So um, one, to take sort of your second question first, to be aware of is really what are your default settings? You know, do you, are, I, there is a sense, to be fair, from a marketing perspective, there has been research that shows that um, marketing materials with white people are more effective than marketing materials with South Asians, particularly in India. Um, there is a, a this sort of idea that fair skin is more aesthetically pleasing is common throughout the world. Um, and I think that one, be, be wary of that, that even if you have somebody who is not white, are you having the fairest version of a brown person or a black person? You know, and what does that convey? Um, and part of that is also the fact that, you know, there's actually a great video going on um, about Issa Rae's show, Insecure, and about the lighting of black people and how, like, Kodak Film really used a white person in their first iterations of color film in order to set the standard by which color photography was um, created and in order to color match and make sure that there was a good match. And so they didn't really learn how to match or show nuances in darker skin until decades and decades later. And so because of that, because brown and black people were fundamentally not captured by cameras in as an aesthetically a pleasing way as white people, there then became, you know, the, then the marketing materials look worse if you use darker people. And then there became this myth that, like, well, if you really want to make it aesthetically pleasing, you should use a white person or somebody with fair skin. And that myth still continues today. Um, there are a lot of, you know, like, just look at your materials and say, like, what are we, you know, think about all the ways in which Jennifer and I identified ourselves in terms of LGBT versus heterosexual um, uh you know, differently abled versus abled, um, brown versus white, um, woman versus man, or even, you know, amongst the gender identity continuum, is there a consistent group that is always represented in your materials, or is there a diversity in that, in, in everything from your icon sets to your the photographs you use to even some of the language you use, whether you use he, she, or they, um, and sometimes if you're a global organization, really being um, aware even of northern and he- southern hemisphere differences. So I actually used to work at Sesame Street, and I think at one point um, the marketing department there, which I was not part of, was launching a new product um, that was a global product and said that it was coming this fall, unaware that the entire, for the entire southern hemisphere, which is where our program was in about 100 countries, that would be spring if it was October. Uh, so even things like that, and I think the only way to really build that awareness, I think, is to expose yourself to people who are from those places, to expose yourself to media outlets that are for people that are from those places and learn how they talk about these things. Jennifer, I consider you and your company marketing marketers extraordinaire. <laughs> so what are some of the things that you're aware of or that you've had to look for to be able to make sure that your materials really are inclusive? Hmm. That uh, is is always a challenge. You know, when we do podcasts, like you've seen, Sema, we try to do verbatim transcripts, for example, for those who are hearing impaired. Um, we, when we roll out a leadership development program, we, we run actually an incredible program for leaders with diverse abilities at one of our clients, and uh, half of our room was sight impaired. And so we had a, a steep learning curve, but a really important one around how do you prepare training materials for those of a variety of abilities in the room when you're teaching from a, a core leadership program. So uh, we've... We have been challenged with it, but we've really welcomed the challenge, and it's it's created a discipline around everything we produce, trying to think about whether or not we know that someone is on the other end of the line or a participant will need an accommodation, thinking through where can we bake in the accommodations in the way even you create PowerPoints, um, in the way that you think about do you want a real-time transcriptionist in the room. And what's, what's really neat is what's an, what, quote, what maybe begins as an accommodation is actually useful for all of us. 
Um, and that's, I think, the big aha for me over the last year or two, getting to know someone like Kathy Martinez, who leads Wells Fargo's disabilities um, segment strategy, is I've learned so much from her about about the fact that, you know, accommodations are so small and yet make a huge difference. And by the way, they're how many companies stumble on innovations for everyone that make all of our lives better. So it's just been a really, it's been a, a great but relatively new um, lens for us to look at all of our things through Sima, but um, you know, we try to just offer all of our media in as many different formats as we can, and it was such a pleasure to record my audiobook, for example, not just because I, I mean, trust me, 15 or 20 hours of listening to yourself talk is is annoying, but it was so, again, really important for me to think about how we could get our the word out in as many formats as possible to be as inclusive as we could be. Um, so, yeah, I think we're all learning and gaining a lot of language, and I, I like, just like the whole conversation about any of these identities, I'm fascinated these days with remembering that none of our identities are binaries, and so even the nomers of abilities and disabilities is something I'm not even, I don't know if I'm comfortable with anymore, just like when we say, are they gay or straight, are they black or white, none of those things, to me, Identity is on a continuum in so many aspects of who we are. And so it's going to create a really interesting <laughs> future for all of us in the HR and D&I world. And I'd love Manol's thoughts on this. You know, how do we categorize identity into checkboxes when we are learning? You know, there are 60 gender descriptors on Facebook, just, <laughs> just on gender identity alone. And that's just gender identity. But I think that all of us are on many continuums. And the way that we need to be able to talk about ourselves and then how do our organizations capture who we are and, most importantly, how do organizations make it less scary to actually disclose who you are? Because I know Minnell knows this well and some of you do as well. Uh, 50% of, of LGBT people still are closeted in the workplace, yeah. and that's a statistic from this past year. Um, and people with disabilities disclose um, probably even far less than that. And so we're dealing with, you know, vast workforces, but a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver trusts the organization enough to go in and check that box about who they really are. And when we can't see us, we can't serve us, we can't speak to us. So it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting conundrum of identity and uh, a lack of trust in employers, which you know, it leads me to really be curious about and working in the question of inclusive cultures. How do we, how do we build a kind of environment where there isn't this fear around disclosure and uh, we know that our companies not only want to see us, count us, but actually build the workplace for us so that we are comfortable and we can do our best work. Well, that actually leads me to my next question because you're talking about challenge and about not sometimes not knowing how to address address different identities, for both of you, were you ever uncomfortable talking about some of the issues, talking about race, talking about gender? Was there ever a time when you're uncomfortable or that you're uncomfortable now talking about some of these issues? I mean, we know you do it anyway, but I'm sure a lot of people <laughs> listening, do. a lot of people listening yeah. are, are, you know, might be thinking, well, that's good for you to say you're in the field, but what do we do when I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing? I don't feel that comfortable, so I'm just going to ignore mm. everybody. Mm. You know, because feel, people feel uncomfortable, they just ignore it and they pretend they don't see. Yeah, I mean, I, Jennifer, if you, I, I don't know if you want to go first or if I can... No, you go ahead. I'd yeah. love to hear your answer. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, one, I've always been comfortable talking about it, but I've, I've probably made other people uncomfortable by my willingness to talk about it, so I understand the problem. Um, you know, not always about what I want to talk about. Um, and what I would say to that is um, two things. One, I think if you are in, if you are talking to someone where you are able to identify that you're actually in a dominant group, whatever that might be, whether you're talking to somebody who's LGBT and you're heterosexual or you're talking to somebody who's um, of a minority race and you're white, if you're a man talking to a woman, if you're in a dominant group, you should probably be listening more than talking just first because you probably don't have the most interesting story to contribute. And I don't mean to be harsh, but like just that, 
you're, you should really be asking questions and, and listening more than doing the talking. And in terms of asking questions, I think um, it's a two-way street. I think, um, I think it's okay to ask what's okay and what's not okay. You know, I think it's okay to ask for, like, a short tutorial, not for that person to speak on behalf of their identity, but for you to ask on a personal level, um, you know, is there a, is there a way that um, you prefer to talk about this or to talk about this identity characteristic for that person? Understanding that it may be different for other people in the same group, you know? Yeah. Well, uh-huh. I, I'm, I'm being I'm being motioned again. Time for another commercial break. When we come back, <laughs> we're going to continue talking about about discomfort, making uncomfortable conversations comfortable, and how to educate people. Again, this is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, with everyday conversations on race for everyday people. When we come back from commercial break, I'll be back with Jennifer Brown and Minel Bopaya. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Hi, everyone. This is Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, back again This with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People. And my guests today are Jennifer Brown and Minel Bopaya. And before the break, we were talking about making uncomfortable conversations comfortable or times when we were uncomfortable. I also want to move the conversation to educating people because it seems to me that if I don't acknowledge the fact that there have been times when I've been uncomfortable for whatever I'm talking about, it's a little bit harder to empathize with other people's discomfort. But how do we educate people? Because I see people, I mean, I know, sometimes I think, do I want to be on a college campus today? Because I do see people being yelled at, being shamed. Is that how we should educate people? So, Mm. Should we educate people? (laughs) Should we we educate people or should we just hit them over the head? I mean, (laughs) let me just say this. Let me just say this. I was one of those people. I'm amazed that people, that my friends that knew me in college still talk to me because I was one of those people. I was a yeller and a screamer and a shamer and it had to be one way and I was really dogmatic and I have changed. I mean, I am like so anti-dogma now. 
So from my experience, I'm thinking, no, uh-uh, that's not how we do it anymore. Let's educate people because even though we all may be perfect now, we weren't always perfect. Somebody educated us. We got educated. So I'd like to hear from either one of you. How do you talk to people? How do you educate people? Hmm. I'll go first, and then I'll if you'd like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I have a really strong viewpoint on this. It's okay. the, yeah, it's, I, I'm not a fan, although the, the anger, for example, in the Me Too movement that we're witnessing right now, anger is so important, and it's, it's been building, and it's necessary, and uh, we, we must be heard, and these stories must be told. Um, the work I've been doing, though, is very delicate work in inviting people into the diversity and valuing inclusion conversation that have not traditionally thought they had any part in it. And so... You know, how do we respond when we are shamed or when we are reminded that we don't have a competency in something or we're reminded that we might be everybody's a little bit racist and homophobic and sexist? We retreat. You know, it's just a human behavior. So what I want at the end is to engage people so that they will be open to learning. And I think that even going so far as to say, you know, calling the unconscious bias, for example, calling a course that, um, we walk in the room and we, we are prepared to kind of hunker down and be told how broken we are. And we are all broken and flawed. And it's, you know, it's an important awareness to raise and understand, you know, from a scientific perspective. Even those of us who do it for a living, bias informs so many thoughts that we have. And really what matters is obviously what we do about those thoughts that matter. So um, I think that the way we speak about this has to be done in a really careful way because I what I don't want is the, the the ceasing of dialogue and I don't want retreating from conversations where people are afraid and right now in particular it feels very fraught these times feel really fraught for leaders and in particular male leaders um, and it was before I mean it was before me too kind of crescendoed I thought you know, it's an, it, we're in an emergency situation already because we are viewing, we're seeing a leadership that is out of step, dangerously out of step with their workforce and um, not engaging. And the, and the reason we know they're not engaging in so many reasons, but one of the proof points we see is the fact that demographics aren't changing in organizations. So clearly the, this thing has not been prioritized by leadership. So I view that as a challenge for those of us in the, community that does this work, like Manal, myself, and so many others, to say, what are we missing in terms of how we are speaking about the, this opportunity? Somehow, people are either not checking into it, they're not resonating with it, they're not taking on the, the helping us carry the water with it. What are we missing? And I, and I do think it's how it's rooted in how we talk about it, and it's rooted, I think, in othering many people and assuming they don't have a diversity story, I think we, we operate from that place. So anger is good. Anger has its place. I think if you're going to invite particularly executives to, you know, partake and get really truly authentically involved in this conversation, I think that work still has to be done. And that's kind of what I'm working on these days. Uh, we've got to map that out because it, without people in power being involved in change, uh, no matter how hard we push, we're, we, as the quote-unquote folks who are lesser understood or in the minority or underrepresented, we are never going to reach the top of this hill. And to me, that's intolerable. So how, how, what can we do differently? I and mean, no, I'd love to have your thoughts on this. <laughs> this no. is like really emerging. Yeah. Right <laughs> no, I think that that's really, I mean, it's, you're incredibly intelligent and, and, and eloquent in how you phrase that, uh, Jennifer, because I think in leadership development, I think you're spot on. Um, and I definitely don't, I don't think that shaming, I don't think shaming, I think shaming is used the wrong way because there's a difference between shaming somebody mm. just because they used the wrong identity qualifier or made an innocuous mistake versus shaming somebody for criminal behavior. And I think that where I get 
like I think people need to understand what you should actually get outraged on. Like I sometimes refer to Facebook as like just an outrage machine, right? Mm. Like everybody's outraged about every little thing, and I'm like, no, no, no. Like it's fine if somebody use like you know is not aware of gender identity issues and doesn't you know say yeah. the right thing. It's completely different to take that sort of understanding approach towards men in power who keep putting like their body parts in the wrong places like that's a whole different like that's not a cultural issue that's not a misunderstanding that's like criminal behavior that they can't seem to identify as criminal which is deeply disturbing to me so i think that there's there's a time and a place for outrage um particularly when an outrage has been when a crime has been committed and people are not held accountable to it and one of the things that comes to mind is this u.s gymnastics massive conspiracy I mean, that's, like, absolutely, like, outrageous and unforgivable, and people Mm -hmm. knew, and all of those Mm -hmm. people should have their feet held to the fire for accountability on that. Um, And so it's important to separate out those two things. I think it's also important to know where you are um, and to be self-aware of how much you want to engage and what your tolerance is for engaging. Um, I think some minority groups are sort of exhausted, um, and I can understand if they don't want to educate and if they are really kind of just angry at dominant groups, and that's okay. Probably don't go out and facilitate a workshop then. That's probably a bad idea then, you know, and and take the time that you need to get perspective. Um, But I, I just... I don't know. There's there's a lot there, and I I'm, I still have you, right? I haven't been cut off, right? I'm, no, no, you're still here. You're still here. We got you. God, it got quiet. We got you. We're listening I, intently. I, we we've yeah. learned to we've learned in DNI to listen. So yeah, we are listening. Yeah. So I don't know, and and um, you know, I think anger has its place. I also know that uh, Brene Brown gave her. wrote a great book on how anger is sort of a secondary emotion and you need to figure out what is it that's actually not being addressed and I think most Mm -hmm. of the time it's our need for justice and fairness that's not being addressed Mm -hmm. and so you have to work on the system and and I think in communications when you're not working with leadership a lot of the stuff that I talked about in terms of design you know media and this is what I learned at Sesame Street Media has an incredible ability to change the way that generations look at an issue, not just an individual. Um, and it can educate through humor, like Will and Grace did, for, or this show, um, Speechless, which I'm a big fan of. And so if you can use storytelling and humor to open up somebody's world, um, that's much better than a lecture. I think that's true. I use a lot of I use a lot of humor in my programs, and that's one thing that people really appreciate. It appreciate. There was one time though, somebody came up to me and said, "Well, you made us laugh too much." They were, and they said, "It's a serious situation." And I said, "Yes, it is." And people learn when they're having fun. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, I see a lot of good humor out there. Like, I love the show. Have you seen Blackish? Blackish is a great show. Great show. You don't, you don't even know you're being educated when you're watching Blackish. I mean, there's a lot of really, there are some really good shows out there. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's my responsibility to be able to bring people along, especially like as, as a white person. I mean, there's a lot of people who will listen to Jennifer and I because we're white. White people listen to white people, and then they need to hear from from other people um, so that they could get some validation. Or like straight people listen better to straight people. We didn't get gay marriage passed, I think, until we had more straight people involved in the scene. Mm-hmm. And then also there was the opening up of of I guess you call it the queer movement, where a lot of people started identifying and say, you know, we're really part of this too. Mm-hmm. So. We do. We we need we need all of us to be. We need we need all of we need all of us together. Mm-hmm. Definitely. What did you think? I don't know if if you saw the the uh, 
what do you, I don't even know what to call it, the State of the Onion, the State of the Union, whatever it was, the State of the Union <laughs> speech last night. I did not watch it, uh, but I, 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 I heard, I, I saw enough of it as I was flicking the TV stations looking for something escapist to watch. But I look at, they're like, I, I look, there's a, are attempts to keep people, to get people to hate each other and to hate the other. And I think about that in terms of immigration. So my next question to you is saying that, I know, I know um, and all your family, you said, is, is from India. Mm-hmm. Thinking about immigration today, mm-hmm. is there a racist factor to what's going on? Um, yeah, I think there's always been a racist factor <laughs> to immigration. As I stated before, my parents wouldn't have been allowed in the country before 1965 because we had a law that said that was, I mean, it's referred to as like a white-only policy of immigration. Um, and I think recently I saw, I, I don't know, I, somebody should fact-check me as to whether this story is true, but I believe some Trump supporters actually ref, um, hollered at a congressman that he was here illegally when he was Native American. <laughs> so um, I think that there's, a, a lot of racism. I think it's, there's a lot of dog whistles. Um, but I will also say before we dive too much deep, too deep into it, that I, my response to the current political climate is not to talk about the current president. And because I think he, I, growing up in New York, I think he's a PR um, maven. And I think that's what he wants. I think the most effective tactic is to ignore him. Because I think the more the more Google searches he gets, the more you know, the more SEO rankings he gets, the happier he's going to be. And to instead work with um, our representatives in Congress and put the pressure there to hold them accountable. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying this. I'm, I'm not yeah. saying this so much about Trump because Trump is is Trump. Is he's one Trump. Yeah. Yeah. My concern is if we are talking about race. Mm-hmm. Because I have had people tell me, let's keep the conversation about race, don't talk about immigration. But it seems to me that a lot of the people being targeted are people who are not white people. Yeah. So I mean, what's, what's, what do you think, Jennifer? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I'd love to hear what were you going to say a moment ago, and then I can weigh in. No, um, no, just that, yeah, because if you think about the archetype in your head of an immigrant, that's usually not a white person. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's usually somebody who's Mexican or Asian or something. They don't think of the Irish anymore. Well, it, it depends on who the people are, but you're saying that in, in your mind, that's how you, you oftentimes see it. I, and or you I think, think most, that, most, a lot of people in the United States see it that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think of things as Google searches. Like, if you were to do a Google search for immigrant, how many of those are going to be white people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing a lot of um, a lot of stereotyping. Cause, and I'm wondering how, with everything going on in Puerto Rico and a lot of Puerto Ricans moving to the mainland... How will they be impacted by raids against immigrants or singling people out who people think are immigrants or hate crimes? Yeah, I mean, it's important to state that Puerto Ricans are not immigrants. And so the fact that that's happening is a function of systemized racism. So do hopefully you- they're going to make their... Their uh, power known in uh, in the voting booths. <laughs> That's the day I'm looking forward to. So, if we're talking about race, if, we, if we're talking about race, do we have any kind of responsibility to be able to speak out for people who are not white, who are immigrants in the United States? I mean, some of these people have been here for like forty, fifty years, and they're getting deported. Of course, yeah, of course we do. I mean, I think we all we all contribute to the improvement of all this in our different ways. Um, you know, like, Sima, you may, be, you may be the, like, protester when you're describing your young self as the, the angry, dogmatic yeah. one. You know, we, 
I, we all go through phases as well in our lives when, you know, sometimes it's just sheer anger and we're taking to the streets and then um, we may shift into, like, the role. I I really, I makes my heart feel good that I'm trying to address the power structure and the access that people have and how they're seen and valued in the employment um, arena, you know, so it's hard for me to comment deeply on, on this on this question that you ask, but... We've got to fight this the, the the tendency to to the darkness in all the different ways that we all bring and are comfortable with, and they all there's there's a role for all of us to play. Um, and you know, it was a weird thing to be a white woman in diversity work. So I don't know if you have experienced this, but sometimes I walk out on stage and I know what people are thinking. They just have no idea what to make of me, and they are shocked by so many details. <laughs> but one of them is that I know anything about diversity that I care about it and that I've dedicated my career and my company to it. And that's that's a powerful learning that um, allies are potentially all around us, but we're not seeing each other for all that we are. We're not showing ourselves to each other as well. So I think that I really, the biggest piece is that those of us who've been sitting on the sidelines need to really step in. But but don't feel overwhelmed that everybody needs to be an activist. I think there's so yeah. many different definitions of it. And to me, I'm fascinated by the structures of power. And the niche that I have felt drawn to is the niche I feel like, rather than putting my body on the street to block and to protest and yell, I am going into a boardroom and I'm trying to pry open the hearts and minds of people who have the power to really change the systems that affect you know, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. So, you know, I'm, re- I'm, I'm really content with that because it feels that it's making a difference and it's using, I think, the language I understand and where I can be most effective. Because at the end of the day, like, the question to ask ourselves is where can I be of most service? And I think that's a product of how we were raised and how we speak, you know, how, how people stereotype us, positively stereotype us, what kind of access they give us, you know, in my, in my case. And how can I, I'll always view myself as like a Trojan horse. You know, you wheel me up to the gate and you think, you know, think that I'm um, something that I'm not necessarily. <laughs> and then you bring me inside the walls and, and you know, we, we learn together. And I, by the way, I have like a whole army um, next to me, behind me. Um, so we are not what we appear. And some of us are, are stealth change agents. And so I just want your... I guess the point I'd want to make to your listeners is like we all can make a difference in the way that we, it, with the tools that we're given. And that's going to vary person to person. So we, but we do certainly need to fight, fight where the country and the dialogue is going because it's scary on multiple levels and there's not enough hours in this radio broadcast to talk about that. <laughs> you know, I agree. I don't, I don't think any, I don't think anybody has to be an activist. And um, I mean, I went from being an activist to being very non-activist, to being when people said, oh, you went corporate. Well, I did because, for one thing, I have a mortgage to pay. I love what I do. And I love trying to change, you know, or working to change cultures in organizations because that's where, that's where people are. Most people were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and corporations, we look at media. We look at messages that people get. And I don't think corporations are evil, you know, people always. Sometimes I run into people in in, um, in this field who try to tell me, "Oh, well, corporations are evil." And I'm thinking, "But who are the people that are, people are working in these corporations? What do you mean by evil?" And at the same time, we all can play a role. I mean, we can make change on so many different levels. I mean, corporations. I I think. I think have the biggest opportunity to stand up for their employees Absolutely. in these times. You know, CEOs are leading on it. Um, there's, they're using their voice and their platform to say inclusion, regardless of what's happening around us, in these four walls of this company, here's what's important to us and here's what we remain committed to. And many of my clients are actually doubling down on their strategies right now <laughs> um, because they not only believe in them, but they accurately know that now more than ever are these strategies needed and I just want them to do that better you know and I want to see more companies doing it I want to see more CEOs leading publicly and taking strong positions on social issues 
that impact not only their employees, but of course the, their constituencies, their clients, their customers. But the leadership I've seen by private enterprise and business is at this moment in time, it's, it's superseding the protections and the, the dialogue that's happening in our government. So, and I don't think that's just now. I think companies realize that they can only survive if they have a diverse workforce that represents a society that they are selling to. You know, oh, it is I a bottom-line argument, but, and it's a little bit cynical, but uh, the outside, the inside needs to match the outside, and, uh, com- and consumers make choices based more and more, especially on what a company values and how transparent they are about that and whether they are willing to go beyond uh, their bottom line and think about their role in society more generally. So um, I-, I am inspired by many, many corporate leaders. I wish I saw more, but I do think that we have some shining examples of people who are really leading the way and setting the bar, and then other companies are noticing that, following, and, and you know, hopefully the business, the voice of the business community is going to really be a champion for equality. Well, so. I, w- I want to thank both of you for being on the show, and I agree. This is not the time to ostracize people. We need to look hmm. for connections. Thank you so much. This is Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, for signing off with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People. And I'm signing off from Jennifer Brown and for, from Manil Bapaya.